Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan. This unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome your Studcast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. 93 years in the making. Four generations running the gamut. It's generational. It's biological. Told from the horse's mouth. Now the story will finally be told in its entirety. No stone left unturned. It is the stud cast. Quoting my friend Brian Last, my man, it's your Tennessee stud cast. It's listener supported. It is here for you. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we now bring him in, the man of the hour. The Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great, Tony. It's my pleasure to be here. I've just, I've kind of been eager to get back rolling again and uh, put that saddle on and let's take them on a ride today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where we go and how far we get today. You know, Ron, the, we've been doing this now about a month and the response has just been from the entire world, overwhelming. Facebook has gone, has blown up. My Twitter account, uh, my Instagram, I have, I am just totally humbled by the response and the comments. The comments are just amazing. People uh, are enjoying this much more even than I anticipated they would. And it's really a it's a distinct pleasure to have the opportunity to pass this stuff along to people that would have never heard any of it. Uh, and I think uh, I have a unique perspective because of all the history in my family. And it enables me to maybe tell things that, that nobody else can tell. I don't know that there's any more knowledgeable person on the planet about how this stuff all began and who actually lived it. And so did his father, and so did his grandfather, and even my son wrestled. So we we it's four generations, and uh, and four million stories as almost. It seems like I just never run out. Once we get started, Tony, I just we don't talk you and I about where this is going. We don't talk about individual things. Uh, we just wing this time after time and uh, program after program and it is just 
it's it's a it's a an honor to have the opportunity to work with you because the more we together I realize how much your knowledge how much knowledge you have about the sport and it really amazes me we got a guy we're going to talk a little bit about today probably maybe hopefully by the end of the program named Jack Pfeffer that uh, you have more knowledge of him than I do well I don't know about that obviously though one thing I'm trying to do here on my side is just keep the conversation going and also not get in the way. That's been my goal from the outset. I, I host a daily radio show and have for about 25 years. I'm used to being the star there. Here, I just want to be a guy sitting in the background playing some guitar for you, singing a little backup. Hey, you're my front man. And you know what? When you have the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller as your front man, you're going to have yourself a pretty darn good band. So Roy was the leader of the band. In fact, Roy started the band. Roy went out and got the players. When last we visited on Studcast 4, you had said it towards the end of that. I want to say a few words about Roy. I want to get back into Roy. So go ahead, Stud. Let's, let's talk about Roy, Roy Welch. Now, we've talked about Roy's coming a wrestler and start, how he started his, his territory. We've covered a lot of ground with Roy. But what we haven't covered with Roy is how he interacted with me, Robert, and Jimmy Golden. We're cousins, all pretty much the same age, all born within three years and a three-year period of time. And we, obviously being cousins, we were lucky enough to spend a lot of time together, especially in the summertime when we went to visit Roy. He had a big farm in Yorkville, Tennessee, which is... Pretty hard to explain exactly where it is. It's a small town. It's east of Dyersburg and west of Jackson, Tennessee. If anybody knows the, the state of Tennessee, they can kind of picture where that is. But uh, it's a small, very small little town. We go there every summer. We stay with them quite a bit in the summertime. I guess my old man wanted to get me out of the house, and uh, they wanted to have some time alone and. It was a good place to go. We were treated well, but we were treated roughly. He was he was different than any any grandfather, I guess, people would ever have. Uh, I told a couple of those stories last week, I think, about riding ponies and things like that, where he would put us on the on the meanest instead of the nicest, sweetest little pony. He wanted to see us get bucked off. He wanted to see us get scraped and scratched and Jimmy and I were talking about this just a couple of days ago. He's been keeping up with the stud cast, and uh, he says, uh, you know, Ron, I remember riding that pony. Shorty was his name. He goes, I remember the first time he put you on him that the pony ran down the side of the barn and scraped you off by running your legs up into the wall and then tried to kick you when you went off the back end of him. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to talk to you, Jimmy, about all the things that he did to you, so... Well, you know, we kid each other about those days. And so let's just uh, kind of attack Roy from a different direction here and see if we can't fill in the, the blanks here that we that we did, haven't gotten to already. Uh, and let me just start with uh, cars. Roy was a Cadillac man. He was making money. He could afford to buy any type of car he wanted. He wanted a big car. He was only about 5'8". 
when he started in Ohio, he weighed 160 pounds. Now in the 50s, he's at 200 plus. He's put on weight. His he's got more size. So you know, he felt like he needed himself a big car, and he pretty well uh, he pretty well uh, kept a new one every year because he was still going to a lot of his cities, and his territory was so big in size. He would put 100,000 miles a year on a Cadillac. And during that 100,000, when he got to 100,000, he'd trade it in for a new car. So he was, he was dry, and he was, he was unlike any, any other man in so many ways. He liked to drive. These were two lane roads. Now, remember, we're back in the 50s. You didn't have any freeways. I don't think there was a freeway in the United States at that time, probably. And he would drive down the middle of the road. He didn't like to drive in his lane. He liked to drive down the middle of the highway. Highways weren't as crowded as they are nowadays, but he wanted to drive 120 miles an hour. And I remember as a kid, uh, my he bought my grandma a 98 Oldsmobile, and it had a little counter on the, so that she, when you got to a certain speed, you could set this thing, the little counter, and we'd say you want to go 55 miles an hour. When you hit 55, it'd start go beep, 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 to let you know that you were at the speed you wanted to drive. His farm was located off a main highway, and you had probably a mile of dirt road before you got to the actual asphalt. And I remember he drove that car one time. His Cadillac wouldn't do that because. He would have driven you crazy. He would have always been beep, beep, beep. He couldn't turn it up high enough that it wouldn't beep. So we're driving in her car, and he gets on the dirt road, and he heads down the road, and it's a mile long. He sets it on 95 because it beeped at 40. He flipped it up to 95. Before we got to the asphalt, he was it was beeping again. He was driving 95 on a dirt road. And the, you couldn't see for two miles behind you. It was it was, it was amazing the the dust and just flowed up into the air. He just screamed along the highway. He drove down the middle of the road. He had everything on his car. He had the first car phone that I ever saw in a car. And uh, one time he sent me. He said, "Put this bag in my car." And I went out and opened the trunk. And there was no room in the trunk. It was wall to wall, a big Cadillac trunk, because this was there was no cell phones. This is about as far from a cell phone as you can possibly imagine. It encompassed the entire trunk of that Cadillac. And he would be rolling down the highway, and he would call Nashville from from Mobile. And back in those days, you had to. It was difficult to operate this type of phone. You'd have to find an operator. You'd have to tell her you're on a mobile, and she would try to then contact you with another operator in another state, and uh, then the city itself. It took 15 minutes close to it to get the party that you wanted to speak to, because they obviously hadn't uh, perfected the cell phone and far from it at that time. Besides running like crazy, he had a blue light on his dash. He sat in his floorboard. So he'd be driving along on a two-lane road, and he'd get behind somebody that's running the speed limit. And he couldn't pass him because there's 
it's hills or there's a curve there or whatever double lines he was very careful about that he never strayed across in the middle of the road when he couldn't and uh you'd be running along at uh at 120 miles an hour and he'd have to almost stop hit the brakes he's down now to 45 50 miles an hour like everybody else is driving and if he got into an area that was really congested and curvy and hilly no way to pass he would put his blue light up into the window and it would start like it was a policeman back there. He had a big old Cadillac anyway. And then he had a siren. So if the blue light wasn't enough, they didn't catch the blue light and it didn't pull over. He turned the siren on. Now the siren would go off. Now they, they would pull over. They'd just get over like, gosh, there's a cop behind me or whatever. And we'd go shoom, by him like crazy. And he'd be right back in the middle of the road. How old of a kid were you when he's pulling the blue light out and the siren out on people? 10, 12 years old, real <laughs> young kid. I mean, it, it's a trip. I mean, it's literally a trip. It's not just a trip down the highway, and it's not just a trip with Grandpa. It is a hold-on-to-your-seat trip where you're like, whoa, wait a minute, geez. And I would look over there, and sometimes he'd be doing 130. I don't know how fast this Cadillac ran. But whatever it was, he had that, he must have had that sucker floorboarded because it was rolling along. Yeah, because uh, those were the yeah. days of super engines, super fast cars, big V8s. Big, huge bomb of an automobile. Probably weighed, I'm going to say, 5,000 pounds, yeah. maybe. You know, those are big old suckers. When you went past people, I'm sure they were like, whoa. I mean, they must have made a heck of a noise. He, he was... He was a terror on the highway, but he was a careful terror. He didn't take real chances. He just wanted to drive there, and he drove so many miles. He did not want to spend any more time on the road than what he had to. He wanted to get there and do what he had to do. So now he's driving 120 miles an hour. He's got the siren. He's got the blue light. And sometimes he gets stopped by police. He's rolling down the road, so, you know, he's going to get he gets stopped fairly regularly. Because he was a promoter and he had a connection with every governor of every state that he operated in. He's, he was one of the original developers of the athletic commissions. And an athletic commission was basically, it was a way he could perpetuate his monopoly. He kept his control of all of this area by doing his homework and finding out who was going to win the governor of that state. And he would go to them, meet them, make a contribution, a large contribution in cash. If there was no athletic commission, he would say, you know, have you ever thought about founding a boxing and wrestling commission? Then we would have to have a license to operate. The wrestlers would have to be all licensed. If they don't get their license, well, son of a gun, I'd be the only guy operating in Arkansas and the only guy operating in Mississippi. So he was developing his territory. He'd already developed the territory. Now he is protecting his business. He's buying governors. And so the governors gave him badges. They would give him a special badge that when he rode the highway and the cops pulled him over, he would normally, when the cop came to the window and pecked on the window, 
he would already reach in his compartment between the two front seats. He would open that up. He would find the state we're in. So let's say we're in Arkansas. He would thumb through those badges and he would bring out the Arkansas badge. And the cop would bang, 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 peck on the window. He would roll the window down. He had automatic windows and all that stuff. He'd roll the window down and he would just take the badge and stick it out the window in his hand. He wouldn't even look at the policeman. And the policeman would, he would, the policeman would go, he would look first at the badge and then they would go, what is that? And he'd go, this is a governor's badge. And the cop would go, I've never seen one of those. He goes, what, what does that mean? And he says, that means you've stopped the wrong guy. He says, now you need to let me go because I'm busy. And Governor Fob James, if you're in Alabama, or Governor uh, George Wallace, or whoever it was, Governor George Wallace, going to be very unhappy with you, son, if you don't just allow me to move on down the road. And those guys would let him go every time. I don't know how, how he got away with it, but he just had control. It was like he controlled things he couldn't control. He, he just flipped the badge. Uh, he was crazy about the the types of things that he got away with. We would run like crazy. Maybe I go back and tell you, when he took me to these cities, he wanted to get Rob and Jimmy out of the way. And when he did that, he would do it in the, in different ways. But lots of times, Rob and Jimmy, they let's say, I remember one time in particular, they had BB guns, and they were inside the house. And he, he told me, he says, he says, you want to go with me to Memphis, as an example? And I said, yeah, yeah, I would. And I would say, how about Robin Jimmy? He goes, I, I'm going to get rid of Robin Jimmy. You know, and I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, where are they? And I'd, I'd say, well, I think they're in the kitchen or whatever. So one, I remember one time in particular, he goes in the kitchen and they've got BB guns. And he grabs one of the BB guns and he just starts shooting them. He shoots them in the legs. He shoots them in the back. They panic and they crawl under the table. Well, now he's just, you know, he sort of, he bends down and sits on his butt and he's pow, pow, pow. He's popping them and they're screaming. Oh my gosh. So they run, they take off, they leave the kitchen and they run outside and they climb in the closest tree. Dummies, right? Not too bright, right? Rather, they want to get away. They're going to climb in the tree. So he just walks out there. He had a bad hip. Now, he had hurt his hip when he was probably in his 40s. He's still wrestling, but he had a bad hip. So he, he hobbles out there, and he shoots them in the butt, and he shoots them in the back, and they climb higher and higher and higher in the tree. So he just takes a little better aim, a little further away. He's not going to hit them in the head. He never shoots close to the head or the face, but he's just burning their butts up, literally. And they climb as high as they can, and then they end up in a point where they got to jump. You know, they, they can't, can't go any higher, you know, and they're getting too high now. They're afraid to go higher because they know they can't come down because he's going to just pump them and pump them and pop them and pop them. And they would finally jump out of the tree and they would take off running out toward the pasture. He had a big dairy there. So they'd, they'd run down the road. Sometimes he would go to the next level. He had a gun in his car, a pistol in his car, and he lots of times had blanks in it. And he would then go to the car and pull out the pistol, and he would start shooting at him. It would look like he was actually trying to shoot him, but there's blanks in it. Pow! Pow! 
it was like a shot after shot after shot. There, now they're 300 yards away and running in the opposite direction. He'd turn and say, okay, let's go. So we'd get in the car, and then we'd start our trip, wherever we might be going. He treated me really nice. That's where I had the opportunities to learn what Roy was all about and learn all these things that we're talking about that have to do with him was on these type of trips. Let's just say, since we're talking about Memphis, we would go to Memphis and we would go in the back door of the building. He would go in the dressing room. I was a big kid and I'd get to meet the guys and everybody would treat me good because I'm Roy's grandson, right? Uh, if you don't be nice to me, you, you're going to have a bad time with Roy. So they were all afraid of that. They treated me nice. Roy had a busted hip, had a real bad hip, and he had a cane. In the early years, it was a wooden cane. And he would take his cane and he would walk past a guy who's sitting there, maybe he's got his legs crossed or whatever, and he would wrap him across the shins with that cane. Whack! I mean, the guy would jump up. He would, if it hadn't been Roy, they would have probably kicked his butt. But it was Roy. So they had to go, oh, gosh, Roy, don't do that to me anymore. Later on, that wooden cane became an aluminum cane. So now he had a metal cane. He was even more dangerous. He had a clip on his bow tie. He had a, I mean, a regular tie. He wore a regular tie a lot to the buildings. And he had a little clip on there that looked like a pistol. It was a tie clip. But uh, you could load the tie clip. You could load that pistol. It had a little shot. You broke it down, put a little shot in there, and cranked it back up. And he would take off the tie pin. And if you didn't know what it was, and he'd be sitting fiddling with it like, you know, and it's like he's like he's killing time or whatever. You're not paying any attention. And he would just turn and put it right in your face and go, pow! It was loud as a gun. It was like, oh, people would just fall backwards on themselves. Like, whoa, my gosh, man, what's wrong with you? He was just constantly driving people crazy, tormenting them. Just time after time after time. So we had the badge. By the time, you know, we had all that stuff, I would ride with him at night and he smoked cigars. Sometimes I would go to sleep. I couldn't stay awake the whole trip from wherever, let's say Chattanooga back to back into to Dyersburg or into Yorkville. It was a long, long distance, a long, long ride. He would take, he would reach over and I'd be asleep and I'm yeah, 8, 10, 12 years old and he would backhand me in the chest. He would hit me as hard as he could, pow, out of nowhere. And, and to wake me up, it hurt. I mean, it was like, you know, I would push my back. My, it would almost, I would almost take the front seat out from just jumping away from him. And then he would, if that, and that was probably early in the trip, maybe later on in the trip. Now I'm back asleep. I'm really resting good. He would let the ashes get real long on the end of his cigar. And then he would stick the, ashes underneath my nose and I would snort those hot ashes up my nose from his cigar it was like he was tormenting me too as like I mean I enjoyed making the trips but I hated the trip home because I knew he's going to mess with me all the way home so it was a little bit of a different situation he would take us riding in the jeep and this is this is an example of what type of guy he was he had these jeeps on his farm 
and he would, they had no straps. They had, and no seats in the back. So you had two seats in the front and in the back, there was a little built-in compartments that you could open up and put things in, but there was no, no way you could hold on to the seats. And he would get us in his Jeep. He would put us in the back. He's sitting in the front seat and he would run 70 miles an hour across a field in which there's bumps and the whole Jeep would fly in the air and come back down and fly in the air, crash back down. We're all just scrambling, trying to keep from falling out at 70 miles an hour screaming like oh god stop please stop and boom and then he would turn real sharp and start back across the field you wanted to be close to him but you didn't want to be close to him because you knew that he's going to try to do something crazy with you during the course of the day he was a rare individual to be around um, he took us on a trip one time my brother and i to texas so we had some family in Texas, in Henrietta, Texas. We went out to Texas with him. I remember we stopped in a restaurant, and uh, we were ordering food. He ordered. He see, he told the waitress, he says, uh, he says, give me a steak. And I think he wanted a T-bone steak or whatever it was. And she says, how do you want it? And he says, uh, he says, just wipe his ass and whack off his horns. And she says, I assume that means rare. And he says, I think that's exactly what it means. I mean, you know, he had a way of putting things to people that just, you know, and the waitress says everybody loved him because he was a character. I mean, you know, when he was around you, he was fun. He was a he was an action machine. He never stopped. And he tormented. He he ribbed on this trip to Texas. He tells me and Rob, he says, uh, you guys ever seen a horny toad? We're like, no, you know, we'd seen frogs. Uh, we're Southern boys, but when you get into Texas, those frogs have horns on their heads. And so he says, I'll give you guys 25 cents for each horny toad you can catch me while we're out here in Texas. And I'm wondering, what is he going to do with these horny toads? So we put him in a shoebox. He's got a shoebox. He's prepared. He says, here's my shoebox, and we'll count them at the end of the trip and see how many you got, and I'm going to give you all 25 cents each. So I'm going, well, that still not make any sense to me. So we going back home. We got 15, 20 horny toads in there, right? We collect a little money, and back in those days, that was quite a bit of money. But when we get there to his farm, he has a lot of employees on his dairy, and he has a black guy that named James. I loved James, and I loved his family. I partied, not partied, but I played baseball and football with his kids. We were like a big family. We were living out in a country where nobody else lived. You had communion. You, you played and, and had spent time with all of your little friends that were close enough that you could get to them. We didn't have cars, obviously. We're young. So... He comes back and James, who had been tormented all his life as an employee, James is in the milk barn. And we see him when we pull up there. I notice he's in the feed barn. At the end of the barn was a feed where they kept the feed for the cows. James sticks his head out and Roy sees him. I see him too. Roy tells us, he says, there's two doors. There's two entrances and exits to that feed bin. The one that James was looking at, and then there's a one on the interior of the barn that uh, 
that you could get in and out of. And Roy tells me, he says, uh, go in the barn and lock that door where he, where I got him trapped in the feed bin. And so I do. James is a big guy. He's got a lot of size and a lot of weight to him. He eats good. And he probably is uh, maybe 5'10", but he probably weighs 280. Uh, and he wear, this day, he sat overalls on, and he has no shirt inside the overalls. Uh, I don't know about his underwear, but I do know about he has no shirt. So I've gone around now. I locked the door where he can't get out of the feed bin. And then I'm running back around because I want to see what's going on. Roy opens his box of horny toads and he starts toward the, the, the door of the, the barn. So Robert and I follow him and he goes in the barn and James is already backed away. But he, does, he hasn't made a run for the inside door because he really doesn't know whether he's got something or not. But you could, I could tell instantly Roy's done this to him with no telling snakes, whatever kind of things he can get his hands on. So James sees him coming, and he's, 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 he starts begging right away. Roy's got his hand behind his back. He's hiding the horny toad from him. Big one. He picks the biggest horny toad in the box, and he's slowly torturously walking toward him and James starts begging. He goes, Oh Lord, Mr. Roy. He goes, no, no, Mr. Roy, what you got? What you got? Roy just says, no, don't worry, James. It's fine. You ain't going to mind this. And he keeps this. And so finally he gets within maybe 10 feet of him and James runs for that door, that exit. And I've locked it. He gets there and he starts trying to get it open and it, he realizes instantly I'm screwed. So he turns around and kind of like a wrestler does, he dropped down on his knees and threw his hands behind his back like to beg. And he starts going, Lord, Mr. Roy, please, please. And Roy just kept slowly approaching him, still got it behind his back. And he gets right up to James's face. And James now is on his knees. He's begged all he can. He knows it's coming. He has no idea what's I, what I'm going to get. Roy then, all of a sudden, he's a, he just whips that horny toad out and he sticks it right up there in his face. And uh, <laughs> James, uh, his eyes get huge. He's face to face with a, 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 big to a big frog that's got horns on his head. And he's like, he'd never seen anything like that. And he goes, oh, Lord, Mr. Roy, what you got? And then Roy reaches and gets his overalls and drops the frog in his overalls. So it goes down in his pants. Now he starts to pound himself. He falls on the floor on his back, and he's trying to hit the frog. The frog's crawling around in his stomach and down there, and he's pounding himself, slapping, slapping, slapping himself, and screaming and rolling. He's finally rolling over and over and over, and Robin and I, we're looking at each other, and we're like, we don't know whether to laugh or just feel real sorry for him, you know? I said, I can't watch any more of this. I, I went on out, and I, and I don't know how Roy, I'm sure he got the frog must have fell out of his pants leg or whatever. He eventually got the frog out of his thing, but uh, he just did some horrible, horrible, I, I, I call them ribs. 
And that's what he'd call them to. He said, yeah, this is just a little rib, you know, it's just a little joke. He would do that to people of all kinds and in different ways. It's a, it was really amazing. This one, it's the epitome of Roy. He says to me and Rob one time we're visiting and he says, uh, do you guys ever have any rattlesnakes down there on your farm in Mississippi? We had a big farm in Mississippi at the time. And now I'm in, I'm in uh, the ninth grade, probably. And he says, uh, do you have any rattlesnakes? And we go, yeah, you know, we had all kinds of snakes on that farm. We're in Mississippi, and they got water moccasins and copperheads and rattlesnakes and every, whatever you could, whatever nasty type of thing you could get, they had it there. So he says, I'll give you guys $20 if you can bring me a live rattlesnake. I'm thinking, what do you want to do with a live rattlesnake? My dad's got a dozer and uh, on the farm, and he's out pushing over stumps one day, and we're working there, picking up stumps and building fire and, and cleaning new ground, new land. And he pushes over the stump, and out comes a rattlesnake, a big old diamondback. He was a beautiful son of a gun, 12 rattlers and a button. He's a big boy. So we told Dad, Dad on the dozer and pointed him out, and, and the, he was crawling into some grass. And my dad was pretty darn tough, too. He had no problem handling snakes. So he jumped off the dozer, and he grabs the tail of the rattler just before he gets in the grass, drags him back out into the dirt, puts a stick on his head, catches him. So we put him in a five-gallon bucket. And two weeks later, might have been a week later, we're going to visit Roy. So we say, we're counting our money, man. We're going to get $20. This is a big deal right? for us. We didn't have opportunity to get that kind of money. So we take him to Roy and Roy, we tell him, Roy, we, we got you a rattlesnake. He is like excited, like, oh, you're kidding me. I go, no, we got a rattlesnake. He's in the five gallon bucket. He's in the back of our car. We put the rattlesnake in the trunk put a lid the best we could over the top of the five-gallon bucket. And when you got near that snake, boy, he would start to rattle. In there, he sounded like five snakes. He was, he was, and he was a big snake. He was probably five inches across. He was thick. And uh, so Roy opens the trunk, and he, he takes the bucket, and he throws them on the ground. And Dad was always real careful with snakes, especially if they were poisonous. Uh, and he would use a stick to you know, pin his head down so he could grab him right behind the head. Roy had seen, I could tell instantly, he had dealt with a lot of snakes. And when he poured that rattlesnake out, before the snake could coil, he was starting to coil. Before he could coil, he just reached down like a cat and grabbed him around the back of his head. He says, you boys want to see something? He said, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, now, what are you going to do with that? And he says, follow me. So we go out to the milk barn, and he has a threaded needle. I don't know. He's anticipating. I assume that we might have a snake come sooner or later. He was ready for it. He had a needle threaded, and he took that needle, and he stuffed it in that rattlesnake's mouth, and he sewed his mouth shut so that he could not bite you. He could not open his mouth, but he's alive. And he's mad. You can imagine the snake when he starts sewing him up, stitch by stitch, 
uh, starts at one side of his mouth, sews him. He probably did six stitches across the front of that big mouth that Rattler had. And then when he finished, he took him and he opened the back door of his Cadillac and threw him in his car. And I was like, what in the world is he going to do with this snake now? So then I asked him, I said, what are you going to do with that snake? I, well, he goes, I'm picking up three boys tonight that are working. And he goes, I'm going to have some fun. Now, I'm like, whoa, now, what in the does what is he going to do? So, so the next day he comes back, and I couldn't wait to go in there. What happened? What did you do with the snake? And he said, well, he said, he said, the snake got pretty comfortable in that old hot car. And he says, he got in the, he got underneath the front seat. He said, somewhere in the middle of the front seat, underneath the seat. And he says, he was really quiet. He says, I couldn't ask for a better snake. He said, when they got in the car, he said, he didn't do anything. I started out driving and he says, you know, I was running along pretty good. That meant to be, he's running along a hundred miles an hour. So he's rolling down the road. Now he's got three guys in his car and a rattlesnake in there. They don't know the rattlesnake can't bite them. And so he tells the rattler, he's ready for the rattler to make himself known that he's there and he can't get him to, to crank up. So he, he tells them a story. And then when he finishes the story, he's uh, like a big laugh. Ha ha ha. And he slaps that seat right over top of that snake. And that rattler just turns it. He said, boy, he cranked it up. So I said, well, what happened? And he said, I, he says, I'll tell you what. I says, kept rolling at 100 miles an hour. He said, I never slowed her down. And he said, they all had their doors open and they were had one leg out. He said, they were just about to go before I slowed her down and pulled over. And he said, I had to pull a snake out. He said, I just reached under the seat. And he said, they were going, oh, God, are you an idiot? It's a rattlesnake. He's going to bite you. He's going to bite you. He said, I just reached under there and grabbed him. He said, I never let him look and see that he didn't have it. He couldn't bite you, that I'd sewed his mouth shut. And he said, I took him around and threw him in the trunk. After that, I heard a lot of wrestlers that told me stories. I don't know how long that rattlesnake survived, but he threw that rattler on as many as probably 20 or 30 wrestlers they were just absolutely horrified, as you would imagine anybody would be if you had a rattlesnake thrown on you, a live rattlesnake, and him rattling, doing, and making all that noise. So that's a general idea. I got maybe one more here that I want to talk to you about this one. We talked about how he trained the bear and slapping his bear. I remember when he told me that I slapped her, I couldn't picture how hard you had to slap something to get them afraid of you. And so he had a big, big old bull on his farm. He had dairy cows, but he, instead of breeding his cows, his dairy cows with, uh, with Holsteins or with jerseys or some tame and, and low key bull, he went and found the meanest, biggest bulls he could find. He had one that was so mean, he could not let him out of the barn. He couldn't, so he kept him in a stall. And he had a window cut in that stall so that he could go, and he was crippled now. You got to bear in mind, he's got a bad hip. He would go to that stall, and he would sit. He had a little ledge there. He would sit in the window, and he would watch his big bull. Now, this bull was so mean 
that when I go up there or anybody would go to that window, that bull would come running across the stall. It was the stall was the size of a big bedroom, maybe bigger. That bull would charge the wall and he would headbutt the wall. Bam, bam. He would scratch and paw and snort. I was scared to death of him. Everybody on the farm was scared to death of that bull. One day I was out there with Roy. Roy's sitting in the window and I'm standing there beside him and Roy loses his balance and he falls over into the stall with the bull. So the bull's got his back to him. He's at the far end of the stall. As soon as Roy lands, he's crippled. He's, he's half, he has a bad hip, so he can't get up real, real quick. He gets about half up, and that bull spins around and charges him. Doesn't hit him yet, but he stops right face to face with him, and he's snorting. <laughs> Y'all can almost see the smoke that looked like coming out of his nose. One of those cartoon-like deals. Now they're face to face, and the bull's... The bull's starting to paw with the right leg like, oh, I got your ass. And Roy reaches up and he slaps that bull in the side of the head. Now, I, now I had no idea. How's he going to get out of there, right? He can't quickly move. So he reaches up and I mean, pow, he hits that bull upside the head. He slaps him. It's like stunned. The bull has a strange look on his face like, what in the heck happened? And he backs up about two steps, and I think he's trying to get his faculties together. The bull's trying to figure out what happened to him. Roy gets his butt up into that ledge again, and he falls backwards out of the stall. The bull realizes he's gone, and he charges and hits the side of the stall, just about breaks his way out of there. He's so furious now. He's realized that he's been hoodooed by somebody. He had an opportunity to get somebody, and they got the better of him. So it's just, I think it will tell people a little bit, give them an idea about the character of this guy. Oh, there's no question, Ron. He sure was a absolute character. We come back on the other side, your Tennessee stud who's laying it out there today. His work rate is at an all-time high right now. As far as I'm concerned, he is wrestling a perfect match thus far in edition five of the stud cast we continue on the other side we're going to hear from you your questions your comments as we continue on the stud cast the stud cast continues in one minute after hey, Tony, these important Tony, hey, stud listen, cast can you offers wait just a second uh, I, I, i've got this perfect match going you're right about that man i got me a sweat going here man let's let's take advantage of this i want to finish roy I, while i'm in it let's go back and don't cheat anybody out of a out of what could possibly be coming here in advance let's hold those questions so next week let's just keep going here man finish this match so you're talking about no listener questions this week. You want to finish on the other side. That's it. I've got other things I'd like to say about Roy. And uh, since I've got this perfect match, like I think you're right. You know, i got a good sweat going here. Let's go back and take care of this and uh, finish it in a grand manner. Is it okay if I take this scheduled timeout? Is that okay with you? Uh, yeah, yeah, if you could. But, uh, you know, it, if we can work it where we don't, uh, I, I, let me go, man. I got a roll going here. Hey, I'm tired ready to drop kick somebody, man. Hey, brother, we're five weeks in. You're bigger than I am, and it's your diamond, your dance floors. So when we come back on the stud cast, the stud continues to unpack Roy 
He says he's got some unforgettable stuff. I'm going to be the judge of that as we continue on the Studcast right after this. The Studcast continues in one minute after these important Studcast offers. Attention stud fans, why not cruise over to the new website at TennesseeStud.com. That's T-N-S-T-U-D, T-N-Stud.com. The stud store is opening soon. A couple of photos are posted now, and they'll soon be for sale. And coming soon to the stud store, T-shirts, a Tennessee stud video, and studcast numbers one through five on CD for fans who want a wrestling keepsake to hold on to for the rest of their lives. These are going to make great gifts, and they'll be perfect for sharing with your friends and enjoying them forever. It's also a great gift for Grandpa Grandma. Remember, they were stud fans, too. We appreciate the tremendous response from all over the world as fans go stud crazy on the hottest new wrestling podcast on Earth. Tell your friends about us and Saddle up each week as wrestling history is told in storybook fashion by the one and only Tennessee Stud. You are back, seated ringside, on this edition of the Ron Fuller Studcast. And we welcome you back on your Studcast. It's just so hard for me to believe that we are already over a month into this thing. And as the Stud said before we left, keep active on the Facebook page, keep active on the website as well, and Stud, you threw me a curveball here. This better be good, brother. You got some more words you want to say about Roy in lieu of viewer mail this week. And I meant what I said before we went to the break. You're pitching a perfect game right now. You've got a work rate that is, well, Jim Cornette would tell you that uh, you are the top of the top right now in terms of his star rating. So why don't you pick it back up on Roy where we were? I, I want to cover Roy in a really nice way here at the end of this, but I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about someone that we haven't introduced at all is my grandmother, Roy's wife. Her name was Abigail, and uh, she was just as tough as Roy. It's pretty remarkable some of the things that she did. I think she deserves to be a part of this because she was a part of this. Before they got married, Herb was around them quite a bit, and uh, they went and picked cotton. It was Roy, Bob. They called Abigail Bob. That was her nickname. I called her Bob, and and uh, my brother and, and Jimmy, all of us called her Bob. I don't know where she got that nickname, but... As an example of how tough she was, back in the day, the three of them used to pick cotton in the cotton field. She would pick 100 pounds of cotton a day, and they would pick 300 pounds a day. It's an unbelievable figure. I picked a little cotton. It's really difficult and hard to do that. She was remarkable to pull a cotton sack that weighed 100 pounds behind her and stay with them all day long. They lived back in uh, New Mexico in a dugout where they'd take a shovel and dig back into the side of wall of uh, limestone and have a dirt floor. And she had an old wood stove in there that they cooked with cow chips, with cow manure. That's what they used for firewood because there was no wood. She just was a real pioneer. When she had my dad, they lived in Columbus, Ohio. He sent her back to New Mexico She went to Roswell, where Dad was born, with her family, and she got a job. She was nine months pregnant. She got a job plowing with a horse. 
the horse pulled her and she plowed. Now, I've done that, too, as a kid. That's a man's job, if there ever was a man's job. She did that the day she was pregnant, and the day that she had my dad, she had to leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because she was having contractions. She went back to the house. They didn't have room in the house for them. There was a Conestoga wagon from the 1800s beside their house. It still had the cover on it, a canvas cover. And my dad was born in that wagon that night. And she got up the next morning and went back to the field and plowed again. She was a remarkably tough person. And she ran the dairy, that big dairy that he spent 20 years building. He was only home two or three days a week. She was the one that really built this dairy, the one that watched after it, one that, that handled the employees, that handled the problems. When he came in, he did what he could. He, he wrote out some checks, and he left, and she was responsible for running a dairy, which is one of the most difficult things that you can do in farming, period because cows are 24-7, 365 days a year. They got to be milked twice a day. And somebody has to watch over that process. And she did an absolutely amazing job of that. That dairy grew from milking six cows to milking a thousand a day. They had one cow that gave 118 pounds of milk back in the 50s in one day. It was a world record for that time. They had cows were so big, their udders were so big that they, when they walked back and forth to the pasture, they would step on their tits and they had to make them bras. They had to design bras that fit over their hips to hold their bags up so that they didn't step on their own tits. It was really amazing, their dairy and the cows they were developing. And Roy was picking these bulls that were non-dairy bulls. They were different breeds, and they were all mean bulls, and somehow that translated into fantastic amount of milk from each cow. They really did a phenomenal job with their dairy, and she is responsible for that. I just wanted to let people know that it wasn't just Roy that was tough. My grandmother was just as tough. Her mother was named, I called her Grandma Holland. She was a wonderful woman. She outlived five husbands. All five of them died during her life, and she lived to be 100 years old. So I come from some stock that's really, really tough, that lives long time, periods of time, and uh, they just have accomplished so much in their lifetimes. It's pretty amazing. So I wanted to bring up Bob. She was really a phenomenal person. She was a great Christian, too. I mean, she took me and Rob and Jimmy. We went to church when we were there visiting them. We went to church twice on Sunday, every Wednesday. And if there was a revival in town, we went every night. So it was a great upbringing. She was quite the opposite of Roy in a lot of ways. And she was such a good role model for me and for all of my brother and my cousin and for just about everybody was around her was just as impressed with how tough she was as what Roy was. And then getting back to Roy, if people are going are looking at, which they will be looking at the picture on the website today, every studcast has a picture and it has a title. And the title of today's studcast is That Little Thing. And there's a picture there of Roy. Roy had 
two cauliflower ears. Cauliflower ears are a symbol of wrestlers, always have been. Few boxers have cauliflower ears, but a lot of wrestlers have cauliflower ears. I have a cauliflower ear. My dad has a cauliflower ear. Roy had two cauliflower ears. And not just small cauliflower ears. If you'll look at that picture uh, that's on the website, when you push to click on that stud cast, this number two episode, you're going to see his ears sticking off the sides of his head. They used to call him, and they had a nickname for him, they called him Bag Ears because his ears were so large and they hung forward on his head, everybody just used to just say, instead of Roy, they'd say, hey, bag ears. And he answered to that name. He, he was, that was just a part of the, the hard things and the, and the serious injuries that you went through to become a wrestler. And back in those days, it wasn't uncommon for guys to have two cauliflower ears. Nowadays, there's no wrestlers with any cauliflower ears. You don't see cauliflower ears anymore because they want to go get them drained. They want to get that big swollen ear pulled down and drain it. They drain it and drain it, and they'd never develop a really true cauliflower. I was always proud of my cauliflower ear. I'm sure my dad was, and I know darn well Roy was proud to have two of them. So it just was a, it, it was a testament to how tough Roy was that, that he could do that. Now I want to finish with, with some stuff here. It's to take a couple of minutes, but I've really looked at this and I want to kind of go through a list of Roy's accomplishments in his lifetime, which are truly amazing. He wrestled for 36 years. I sat down and figured that out. He wrestled at least five nights a week, probably six nights a week. Uh, over a 36-year period, he wrestled 11,000 matches. That is just, to me, unbelievable. I mean, people, if you, if you can imagine how bad you get hurt wrestling, and then you've got the, the ability to come back and go out hurt and wrestle hurt all the time, practically every night, that's the only way you can get to a figure of 11,000 matches. I probably, in my 20-year career, wrestled 6,000, 7,000, darn near just half as many as what, what uh, Roy was able to wrestle. So that in itself is a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, he built the first territory in the South. He did the first tag team matches in the South were done in his territory. The first six-man and eight-man tag matches ever in history were were designed and figured out by Roy. First it was Roy and Herb and Jack in those six-man tags. Later on, when Lester developed, they went to eight-man tags. They had the four brothers. They had the Roy, Herb, Jack, and Lester. Then Now they had reason to have eight-man tags. So he not only was in them and designed them, he really invented the six-man and the eight-man tag. He had the first wrestling bear. We've already talked about her, Ginger. Uh, she has the only bear ever trained that had all of her canine teeth and all of her claws. Uh, he was the only person in the history of bears wrestling that trained a bear that was capable of killing you. That, to me, it's a phenomenal accomplishment in itself. He was the first promoter to provide talent and charge booking fees. It was an idea that he came up with. 
His territory was so large that he needed to do it in order to be able to control the towns. If he didn't own the town, he owned the promoter, basically, that ran the town, and he provided his talent and charged that booking fee. Uh, He was the first to introduce wrestling to hundreds of southern cities all across the south, small towns, big cities, everywhere they eventually had wrestling matches and he was the first one to ever bring those wrestling matches to most of those cities he was the first one to install athletic commissions in the south it kept him in power and it kept him operating his business without having competition those things are just some of his accomplishments then i looked at this from the year 1945 He actually started his territory in the 1930s, but I've just figured it out from 1945 to 1965. He promoted three cities a night, six nights a week. That's 18 live events every week. Now, each one of those events averaged 3,000. Some of them drew 10,000. Some of them drew 1,000 in a small city. But the average, it was 3,000, and I think I'm being pretty conservative, that they would probably draw 3,000 average for those 18 events. That's 54,000 fans a week from 1945 to 65 that watched wrestling throughout the South because of Roy. If you multiply 20 times that 20 years, those 52 weeks, it's 1,040 weeks. Over that 20-year period of time, he drew 56 million fans to wrestling in the South. That is just staggering. It's staggering to think about how a man that can accomplish that and can do that for the sport. I figure of that 56 million, probably at least 20 million of those were fans that never had seen wrestling before. And fans like the ones that I have now that not just watched it over a short period of time that still followed it and still followed this all the way through the 60s, on into the 70s, on into my time and my brother's time and Jimmy's time and beyond. So he was a pioneer of the sport in a fashion that I don't think there's anyone that's ever been on this planet that did as much or accomplished as much as he did as a promoter of wrestling and as a wrestler himself. He died. I'm going to go through this. He died in 1980. My grandmother died in 1981, Bob, and she was 79 years old. Roy died in 1980. He was 78 years old. He died of Alzheimer's. And now Alzheimer's is nowadays, it's a very much discussed topic among athletes. And we pretty well know now that people that uh, got lots of blows to their head during their lifetime it's not uncommon that they're going to have some type of dementia and a lot of times it is alzheimer's no telling how many times roy got knocked out in his life there were no trainers wrestling is not like football you ain't got the trainer sitting on the sideline you get knocked out they drag you out into the floor and they carry you back to the dressing room and they leave you laying there and uh, no doctor ever comes and looks at you and you get back in the ring the very next day that's why I had Alzheimer's. My dad died of it as well. That's probably a pretty good chance. If I'm going to be real honest about it, that's probably the way I'm going to go as well. Because in our sport, people say, well, it ain't real and it isn't this, it isn't that. I don't think there's ever been a wrestler that hasn't been knocked out 
cold at least once in his life. Just out of curiosity, guys that you wrestled with, your peers in the sport that you came up with that are around your age, do you guys ever talk amongst yourselves in terms of, you know, I forget things or I have light sensitivity and some of the other issues that we hear about? Because it's interesting you'd bring up those that have done what they've done in wrestling through the years and the toll it must take on you and all those nights where you say, I got my bell rung tonight and you got to be in the next town, you know, the next night. There's another crowd of people there to be entertained. Do you, have you experienced wrestlers who tell you that they have the after effects of having lived that lifestyle in terms of what's going on with them cognitively? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. I don't go to very many reunions, but I go to a reunion it's called the Gulf Coast Wrestling Reunion. It's every year in March. I've been to it twice. And every time I go, Tony, I'm amazed. I, I sit, uh, Rob and I have been to a couple of these, and we talk after we leave there. We sit and look at the guys there, and some of them are in wheelchairs, and some of them uh, are, are bent over, and they walk like their hips are gone or their back is gone. The injuries that we as wrestlers take, it, it's going to get you in the long run, and most of them are that way. Now, the Alzheimer's and the dementia guys, I'll give you a great example. Danny Hodge, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. I saw him three years ago. His faculties, he was fairly sharp, but he did not drive from Oklahoma to Mobile, Alabama for that reunion. His wife brought him. And now, two years later, there was no Danny. And I was asking, where's Danny? Like everybody else, because everybody loved Danny Hodge. Everybody respected Danny Hodge. And uh, they said that he's, he's got Alzheimer's. And it's a tough sport. My granddad went that way. My dad went that way. And there's probably a real good chance that I'll go that way. Maybe Rob, maybe Jimmy. You know, because we all got knocked out. There was no way to keep from it sometimes. It's a tough life. I wanted to throw that in there because it's a present topic and it's it's big time in the NFL it's big time in those sports that have head injuries and I don't know anybody that had more head injuries than wrestlers uh, it takes us back to those comments when we talked already some about Mario Galento that was getting paid $25 a night for hardways and would collect $125 at the end of the week every one of those hardways is a concussion that's not just a, a blow that's going to open a wound. It's a concussion. You've got to be hit hard enough that your your bell is rung for darn sure. And he was getting his bell rung five nights a week, and some of those must have knocked him cold. I know that's bound to have happened to him. I've been laid on my back and out for I don't know how many times, how long. I've had a couple of times had to go back and they got me in the dressing room and I'd say, how long was I out? And they would say three minutes, uh, five minutes, whatever it is. And they're trying to get you to, uh, that is really a, not a way to live your life. And, uh, and it's, and it catches up with you in the end. So all these reunions and all these wrestlers, you see all these injuries, you see, uh, all these guys in wheelchairs that were, at magnificent specimens physically, and now they're they're infirmed. Their their lives are greatly affected by the way they live their life, and it's a toll that 
that uh, it's it's really hard to comprehend uh, exactly how difficult this sport is on the body because it really takes it right out of you and you're going to be you're going to be impaired and Rob and I always leave those reunions and we look at each other and go dang man we are doing great you know how did we survive it how are why aren't we where those guys are and it's it's we're thankful to the good lord for watching out for us but uh, we're just really really lucky uh, so, you know, that's an important part of it. I felt like it was important to say that. I got one last story I want to tell about Roy. And this one, we've talked here for five episodes about Roy. Obviously, Roy is a tough guy. He seems to have no heart. I want to tell this last story because it may give people an impression about what Roy was really all about and uh and a lot of these stories are telling you what roy's all about but i think this one really really does it for me uh and this goes back to my dad in in war times in 1942 he was he went to the merchant marines he joined like a lot of other a lot of other young guys in world war ii times and they wanted to to help their country and they wanted to be a part of of the war effort and so he joined the merchant marines the merchant marines were probably the deadliest uh, branch of service that you could just about be in because they were you were hauling bombs across the atlantic being made here in america and hauling them and dropping them off in in england and in italy and in uh, in norway and uh, along the baltic sea and you went to all different parts of the world and the germans were sinking these type of ships just every day so my dad decides he wants to become a merchant marine and he goes and trains in new london connecticut and he comes back before he's being sent on his first ship to actually cross the ocean. And he spends a week at home, raised there for a couple of the days of the week. And he happens to be there the night before my dad is going to leave to go to the war. And, and Roy doesn't tell dad tells me this story he says that roy didn't talk to him much he didn't have a whole lot to say to him uh he had never told him he loved him never told him he cared about him really he was such a hard person but i think he was hard because of a because of the reason that he he couldn't say these things maybe uh but my dad's getting ready. He gets packed on the morning. It's a Sunday morning, and he's going to the bus station to catch his bus to take him to Connecticut to get on a ship that's going to be loaded with bombs and, and maybe make it across the Atlantic Ocean and maybe not. And, and he says that he comes to the red light in Dyersburg, Tennessee, little town. There's four red lights in the town. And he's standing on the corner, and Roy's Cadillac pulls up and the light turns red. He has to stop his car. And he stops at the corner where my dad is standing. And my dad looks through the window at him, and he won't look at dad. He doesn't look at him at all. The light turns green, and he drives off. Now, dad told me this story, and I thought my first reaction was, peace, what a, what a hard, no good, heartless person he is. Uh, and then I thought about further about what this actually was. And, and if you really think about it, 
there's and there's no it's not by coincidence that Roy ends up there at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning at the same red light. I think he drove up there wanting to get out and take his son in his arms and hold him and hug him. And he just he he couldn't do it. He could not do it when it came time to do it. And he drove off and never hugged his son, never said, son, I want to I hope you come back alive. I hope to see you again. Uh, That to me is a it's it's a. It tells me that Roy wasn't all bad and his intentions were good to go there and he probably intended to say it, but he was such a hard and, and tough guy inside that he could not do that. And uh, that to me is a story. I hope that leaves people with the impression that, that this guy was a really tough and rugged guy, but, but he had a heart too. And uh, I love my granddad and my grandma very much. And uh, and I really, really, uh, when I think of him, I miss him. And he was a great man. And so was she. And I think I'd like to leave it like that. Yeah, I hear the emotion in your voice. Wow. Appreciate you sharing, man, all that as you reflect back and look back to Roy, who obviously is a complicated man and, you know, those guys come, I just lost my pop recently, 91, World War II guy. They come from an era where it's almost like they didn't have time for the sentimentality. We're about out of time here on Episode 5. Is there anything else you want to say on the way out? And thank you again for doing what you're doing here because, again, the folks are really buzzing about what's going on here on the Studcast and each week it just gets better and better and the emotion that you just shared with us wow close well, us out uh, here tony I, it's not just an honor it's a pleasure it relieves me in a way i'm telling something that comes from my heart and i'm honored to be a part of the family i come from and to have the opportunity to sit here and talk about them and to relate to other people i think a lot of people must go is this for real I mean, did that really happen? And every single word out of my mouth is true. Every emotion that you can have as an individual and as a person I have when I'm telling these stories. And I apologize. I cracked a little bit there. But he was a great man. And so was my grandma. So was my dad. And we're going to get into him in real depth. And when we do, I think people will see that he's a Roy in some ways. He's quite a bit different than others. And I think as our generations progress, we become softer, but we still have that work ethic and we still have that blood that runs through our veins that I'm so proud of. It's just all I can say. I want to thank fans real quickly. Phenomenal, phenomenal what's going on here. I mean, this this stud cast, uh, you know, they're saying all kinds of things about it that, you know, that this is the best new wrestling podcast in america that the story is unbelievable and the storytelling that i do is unbelievable 
I have a story. That's what's wonderful about it. I have a phenomenal story. If I can't tell it, you know, it's still a tremendous story. And I'm talking history. And for those fans that just want to know wrestling history, it's a three-component show we do here, in, in my opinion. It's wrestling, the real wrestling history. It's the real story of a real family that lived it. And it's told by a guy that I assume a lot of people say, I'm going to be the next great storyteller in America. And I just enjoy it. I just love every minute of it. I thank you for this opportunity. And I thank those people for listening out there. Stud, great job, man, this week. Real pleasure sitting alongside and taking the ride with you back in time and reliving some of these great times through your words. Thanks for being here, man, on the Studcast. Thank you, Tony. By the way, if you want more information, you can go to ronfullertennesseestud.com. Again, ronfullertennesseestud.com. The Facebook page, at ronfullertennesseestud.com. Welch and spreading the word for us as I thank you stud thank you my friend thank you very much Tony I've enjoyed it and look forward to the next one you better believe it 93 years four generations talking about something here generational talking about something biological it's in the blood just like the lyrics of the song the Tennessee stud and the whole story is going to be told it's the stud cast listener supported here for you for the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller this is Tony Basilio wishing you a great day. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the great Smoky Mountains. 